I really look forward to these every week. Yeah. I look forward to them too. Mm-hmm. I just like talking mm-hmm. with you people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you. It's a highlight of my closed-in week that I get to talk to some people <laughs> that I I don't look at all the time. Yeah. Basically, your dad mm-hmm. and your grandma, Andrew, those are the people <laughs> I look at. Right. <clears throat> and, well, excuse me, and the and cat the cats. people. The cat yeah. people. Right, yeah. <laughs> don't you get tired of looking at their pointy little ears all the time? Never. <laughs> I never get tired of looking at the cats. <laughs> I could just sit and look at the cats all day. Oh, yes, absolutely. (laughs) They go away. They don't want to see it. They're gone. They don't want to see us right now. (laughs) Hmm. Hmm. Actually, I'm going to have to go and poke them. Yeah. Yeah, you can't let them them just sit quietly Mm -hmm. for too long. Mm -hmm. Right, yeah, otherwise they'll melt. Welcome to week four of good-looking people in small, clever rooms that utilize every centimeter of available space with mind-boggling efficiency. We're back for another dose of Infinite Jest yet again. We still haven't had enough of it. Um, (laughs) Presumably, we're all up to the same page today, page 109. Um, Yes. Yes. Excellent. I'm Mm. Andrew, and I'm here with my fellow rereader, Brianna. Hello. And we're joined by my mom, Norma. Hi, everyone. And by our friend, Vinny. Hi. So this section is a lot about like I don't know the the uh, the physical difficulties of uh, tennis as a pursuit. We get more with Marat and Steeply. Yes, it was it was less fractured. There were the two main. There are just the two main stories in this section, right? I mean, the mm-hmm. two yeah. main chunks that kind of yeah. Mm-hmm. It felt a little bit more word. Yeah. yeah, yeah straightforward. <laughs> Not that you can necessarily understand it or what's going on, sure. but but it's it kind of hangs together. Well, I kind of wanted to ask just generally big picture, what was the effect for everyone inter- kind of intercutting these two mm. I felt like they were and, both yeah. I felt like they were, there was a certain thread of like examining feelings that went through it, went through yeah. both. I mean, yeah. with the boys in the locker room, it's uh, Trolches asking about feeling and recogni- like recognizing what you're feeling and identifying your feeling or even recognizing that you are feeling something. So there was kind of that little thread in that and very vaguely sort of and then Mm -hmm. on the ledge there's the whole examination of what do you love yeah kind of you know much more through like an ideological lens right Mm -hmm. but i definitely i i thought in a way and i'm not even sure why i thought it that they were they were similar in a way yeah even Mm -hmm. though they're not at all (laughs) so i don't know what that means 
I found myself thinking that too, simply because they were intercut together, I started feeling like I was supposed to be drawing parallels between them. Right. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's interesting that you use the word intercut because I was thinking about that too. Um, and it does seem like kind of a cinematic technique. Is that something that Wallace has been doing this whole time and I'm just now noticing or is that new to this section? Well, we've talked about uh, the idea of television and commercial breaks before. Mm, yeah. Um, so I was trying to figure out is one of these the commercial break for the other one? I mean, for me, um, the big thing that this intercutting does is kind of cements Marat now as one of the main people that we're going to be following. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. I also found myself going back, the scene in, in the tennis locker room with these kids and talking about the the little buddies and the big buddies and the, <laughs> the wisdom or lack of wisdom and administrators thinking this is a good idea. Uh, but I keep looking at Hal and, and how, you know, his friends tease him about being the guy with the perfect memory, but he's just a kid at the tennis academy. And yet, so how does that, how does that fit with the opening chapter of the book where he's, he can't speak without people dragging him off and thinking he's having a seizure. So I keep I keep going back to that. Like, why are these two howls that we see? Yeah. Does that happen later? Well, it does happen later, I guess. Right. The first yeah. scene happened later than, than yeah. the locker room scene. For sure. Yep. Yeah. Uh, first scene was in the year of Glad, which year is going Glad. to be a different year than the year of the dependent adult undergarment. So, yeah, I'm also sort of thinking about that and kind of um, what is it? Because in that first chapter in the year of Glad, uh, didn't I'll bring up something like um, that exactly a year ago, there was something that happened that kind of drove all these grades right. down. And right. yeah, right. Mm -hmm. So my guess is whatever it that thing is, is what causes this um, schism with Hal. Right. Mm -hmm. And because I am so foggy about how the years proceed, even though you keep trying to help me understand how it all goes. <laughs> For fear of spoiling things, I want to assure you that something will happen that will... That will help bring help it together things. for me? Okay, yeah. well, that's, that okay. will keep me going. Uh, At the will... very least, you'll have a cheat sheet. <laughs> as oh, Okay. So we're still, we, we've kind of segued into talking about the, um, the locker room scene here. They're like kind of rehashing a, a test that they just took about. I thought the, they were the studying. Grammar. They're studying for it. Yeah. Well, they're, they're talking about, aren't they talking? They're talking about Tolstoy. And then yeah? they start talking yeah. on the first page. Well, they're, and but the, they're. But then somebody says, no, no, they're not really talking about what Tolstoy said. They're just talking about the syntax of Tolstoy's right. sentence. Oh, yeah. yeah, that's Hal says that. Yeah. And it's clear, I, I'm intrigued by Hal, like seeing Hal interact with his peers in this scene because it seems like he gets some gentle ribbing for his photographic memory and for his ability to like, what, digest right. 
dictionaries and thesauruses and things. Right, and they talk about yeah, they should also they all want to everyone wants to sit near him when they take the exam. Right. <laughs> but they also say on 97 it's all only half nasty. Right. And that Hal is placid about getting his balls smacked around. They all are. Right. It seems so it's like just kind of, yeah, it's, it's like the walker room ribbing kind of. Mhm. Mm-hmm. Buddy ribbing. Yeah, I interpreted it as a, well, they're teenage boys, mm-hmm. which maybe yeah. sounds dismissive. And, and so then they're also talking about history of TP or history of entertainment oh, class right. that, that was, they're about to take a test for. That was intriguing. So this is... <gasps> Did one. anybody else notice who is teaching that yeah. class? I did. Yes. His yeah. Name had popped up in the Disney Leith. right? The, yeah. Every inch of Disney Leith, and he appears in a number of Incandenza's films. Right. Um, I'm unclear about whether he's an actor or a collaborator or, or what, but apparently through some act of patronage, he's been given this teaching position at Enfield. Do you think he's qualified? Uh, probably. Uh, it's, it's interesting. I questions. <laughs> Because he has the history of entertainment one and two that he teaches. And then he also teaches this high level esoteric optics class, Mm, which I found. So there's that whole optics thing again that comes from James O, no doubt, you know, with his optic back. And and that's such a weird thing to be offering at this high school. But it's also it's equally intriguing that they have history of entertainment one and two. That this well, is a, and obviously yeah. this is a big deal. This is like it's like taking American history one and two or world right. history one and two. History of entertainment one and two. Yeah, and I'm unclear if that's like do you think that every school in North America has a class like that? Or is that just because of Incandenza's interests that those classes are part of the curriculum? I interpreted it as the latter. Yeah, I, I mean, Enfield is obviously a very a strange, quirky place because yeah, it's of a its special flower. Because of its uh, quirky administrators and founders and all, mm-hmm. but but I don't know. Maybe maybe it's just something that everyone. I don't know. Yeah, um, I mean, yeah. this is a very entertainment-driven society. This seemingly. is true. Mm-hmm. The tech talk here is intriguing to me. I was trying to kind of make heads and tails of what they're talking about. They're very clearly comparing um, TP TP consoles (laughs) to what would have been like 90s television technology. Right. So they're talking about the screens of TP consoles. They mentioned the cathode luminescent panel, no cathode gun, no phosphenic screen. Uh, which sounds to me like a flat panel TV, like an LED screen, probably right. something that doesn't right. have a doesn't have an electron gun uh, scanning the screen. And there's a couple other things that I want to touch on. He mentions the right capable. C- he says uh, Leith might say the right capable CD was like yes. a revolution in entertainment. <laughs> yeah. I yeah. find that really fun. It probably was. Like in retrospect, it was m- more really for the ability of people to burn their own mix CDs and share them mm. around. I think is the lasting legacy of CDRs. But it's amusing to me because that would have been like right on the bleeding edge of consumer technology around the time that. David Foster Wallace was writing this book, and it probably did seem like a miracle at the time. 
It was a miracle. You mm-hmm. could yeah. even whether you used it for music or or whatever you put on it, you could store so many more files than you could yeah. on the old 700 floppy disk. megabytes. Than on the old floppy disks, like, and it, they were just yeah. more stable. And mm-hmm. and the fact that you could slip that disk into your computer and write it right from your computer, it seemed miraculous. I mean, mm-hmm. Andrew, you know, we got. Oh, our yeah. first, our yeah. first real new computer that we bought, we waited until we could get the CD drive, and you couldn't write. Right, yeah. Uh, they, yeah. Weren't, they weren't writable, but just to be able to have the CD drive that you could put... That w- those were, load th- those were could, wacky times. It that had was, that like square CD caddy that you had to put the disc yes. into to put it into mm-hmm. the drive. And, yeah. Right. But that was, that was like a huge leap somehow. Mm-hmm. But it's it's amusing to me that they're like having this really wonky technical discussion about really old about old technology. Though, yes, it right? it, re- it really appeals to me. I mean, I, I yeah. would I would be happy to dive into a discussion like this. Oh, which leads me to point out, I saw I, uh, in in catching up for this week's reading, I I read through the last ten pages of last week and the three hundred four end note with uh, is it is it Trelch writing the paper? No, yes, struck. Um, struck. Yeah. Struck. Uh, struck. It struck struck writing the paper. Because people were struck by trains. Oh, yes, that's right. And he oh, yes. uh, ruminated on the uh, wisdom of you. using his own uh, um, name as a right. verb and whether that was uh, what, what telling the, that he was pre- plagiarizing. Uh, one of the things I noticed in that uh, note that's kind of thrown away is that so it mentions that TP systems can be used as word processors if you have the proper like word processor module plugged into it, um, which is a little silly. And it reminds me of like those old home computers that would like a TI computer that would plug into your TV and it had different boxes that would do different things that you could plug into it. Um, but it also has a separate keyboard. And they have, they have touch resistance settings. Did, did anyone else catch that? That there, you could see it, it's set to maximum touch or or maximum tension yeah, or something like that. Um, I interpreted that as a as a typewriter. Yeah, callback. it's like, it's yeah. like typewriter oh, yeah. touch. Uh, manual typewriters, you could adjust the spring tension to set how hard you needed to hit the keys. I also assumed mm. that that was a thing that Struck was doing so that he'd have to stay awake. Yeah, That probably. he'd have to really pound the keys to... Mm-hmm. Um, so right. the only other... I, I, I will let this go in a moment, I promise. But the, the only other thing that, that I just tripped over, and I don't... Again, I don't know. It seems like such um, a specific way of wording this that it doesn't seem like a mistake to me, but I also don't understand what it means. They're talking about the TP screens, and they say two to the screen's diagonal width in centimeters lines of resolution total. Which So it's a way of saying, like, for every additional centimeter of diagonal screen width, you exponentially increase the resolution of the screen. So the bigger the screen, the higher the resolution, is that? Right, which is <laughs> which is fine. That it, it sounds complicated for a, as a standard for delivering filmed content, but uh, the thing that I really trip over is that because of this exponential scaling, that means that a very small screen would be extremely low resolution and a right. like 
moderately sized screen would be almost unimaginably high resolution. That reminds me of Fahrenheit 451 and the wall-sized screens. Yeah. And then uh, here in Infinite Jest, there was the so high def that you're that you feel like you're actually there oh that's true screens yeah so maybe they are resolution i guess they're talking about it really like if if you believe that math um i'm just using like i don't know 32 inches is like an average sized tv i would say our tv is like 32 um that would be 2.4 times 10 to the 24th lines of resolution. That's like more lines of resolution than there are atoms in the universe. Like that, (laughs) mm -hmm. uh, I'm kind of baffled by that. The numbers are hard for me to take in and I don't really understand all the technology, but what I take from all of this and from the ridiculously high resolution and everything, is that these people take their entertainment systems really seriously. I, I guess like that's true. Are, that's like, they yeah, are, the pinnacle they of technology. Are really Im- mm-hmm. Well, and they're really important. Mm-hmm. Or you wouldn't keep developing yeah, like, better ones. You know, like every, if you, if you like, took the entire American budget for like defense and education right. and the space program and put it all into trying to improve the image quality of TV sets, maybe you'd get something like that. Well, and and when I I mean throughout the book, whenever the, the TPs come up and the entertainment cartridges and everything, I I just get I get the feeling that. You know, we are very screen-oriented and entertainment-oriented culture, but I get the feeling that they're, like, way beyond. They're Mm -hmm. beyond beyond. Like, Mm -hmm. I'm surprised that these boys can go and play tennis because I'm surprised they're not (laughs) sitting in front of their TP watching something. Yeah. Like, virtual tennis or something. I I don't know. I I find it... That is interesting because to the extent that we've seen any of them interact with TP consoles, like Strzok is using his to write a paper and he's kind of bored. Right. Orin puts something on background, doesn't he? Or am I wrong about that? But by and large, apart from the medical attache and his whole retinue of unwilling companions, uh, it seems like most people aren't really that preoccupied by their consoles well it's just what's available it's day-to-day life yeah i guess but they seem to talk about it a lot and they have they have entertainment one and two history of entertainment one and two and i would totally take that and steeply are you know they're referring to the entertainment that's true yeah and and there's the medical attaché, who we mustn't forget. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. But as you say, they don't seem to, like these kids don't seem to have, they don't, they don't, as you pointed out earlier, it's not like they're doing interactive gaming or stuff like that. They don't seem to be. You don't. Mm-hmm. Since I mentioned uh, Note 304, and it, it, it is referred to again in this mm-hmm. section, there's yes, another it note that yes, points yes, us yes, at yes. the same Revisit, note. revisit it. Um, I, I wanted to Did mention... Did anybody reread it? <laughs> no. I didn't reread it, but, I, <laughs> but I, 
I, I did rethink about it. Yeah, yeah. sure. Um, <laughs> the things I could remember, the horrible parts that I could remember. I, I did. So, so I did. I did a little more research about a couple things that came up in here. Uh, one is that one of the Quebec separatist movements or organizations is called uh, the Fille de Montcalm, which would be the Sons of Montcalm. Um, yes. Which I believe after Feast. some, after some. They're the Fils. Oh, Fils de Montcalm. I did a little Wikipedia voyage and found <laughs> that it probably refers to uh, Lieutenant General Louis Joseph de Montcalm Grozon, uh, who was a French military official who defended New France against the British in the French and Indian War. Um, <laughs> New France. Um, and, and his forces were defeated by the British in Quebec when he chose to attack the British, even though his forces were outnumbered. Um, but that's, that's probably what this refers to. If they're okay. his sons, then, or like metaphorical sons. Like carrying on the tradition of attacking even if the you're Anglophones. Even though, um, yeah, even though you're outnumbered and you probably have no chance of success, you go forward anyway. Right. Yeah. Uh, can I also say uh, that North America has been involved in some really, really convoluted and awful wars in its past, but I can't think of a more complicated and confusing war than the French and Indian War. Like, I yeah, know I almost really nothing about it. I don't understand that at and all either. The, the little bit that I read about trying to learn about Montcalm just I, it, it melted my brain trying to understand all the diplomatic. I'm with you on that. I have no idea, really, yeah. I think, yeah. anything about it. Um, oh, and the other thing that I looked up was in regard to the Cult of the Endless Kiss. I mentioned that that reminded me of a performance piece that I had heard of. I thought that this was a recent thing that had been performed after the publication of Infinite Jest, but it actually is a Marina Abramovitz piece with Ule from 1977, She's maybe best known for a piece she did a few years ago at MoMA, I think, called The Artist is Present, where she sat at a table every oh. day for like a month and people would stand right. in line to come sit in front of her and make silent eye contact. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. Okay. yeah but she's one yeah. of the like best known performance artists still working today. And she did a piece with Ule in 1977 called Breathe In, Breathe Out. So for this performance, the two artists blocked their nostrils with cigarette filters and pressed yeah. their mouths together so that one couldn't inhale anything else but the exhalation of the other. As the carbon dioxide filled their lungs, they began to sweat, move vehemently, and wear themselves out. The viewers could sense their agony through the projected sound of breathing, which was augmented via microphones attached to their chests. It took that them sounds 19, terrifying. It took <laughs> 19 minutes in the first performance and 15 in the second to consume all the oxygen in that one breath and reach the verge of passing out. Dear Lord, I don't like that. Yeah. I don't either. That sounds yeah. terrifying. Mm -hmm. That sounds mm -hmm. awful. Do we want to talk a little bit about, like, the Big Buddy program, or... <laughs> the Big Buddy program just cracks me up. Mm-hmm. Uh. <laughs> that they're sort of, like, administrative spies yes. on, actually, on the younger kids. Actually, you know, when I read that, I, it, it really struck me that it's very much like uh, in education... Uh, Preschool 12, the thing now is that teachers have a coach, uh, an instructional mm. coach mm -hmm. that works with them and checks in and just as a sounding board. And the coach, the coach is 
supposed to be um, a support and a listener and a, but not an evaluator and not, Mm -hmm. and you're supposed to be able to talk with your coach about anything and they're not supposed to like share what you say with administration. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But it's kind of the same. They really Mm -hmm. are. They really are spies for the system because Mm -hmm. everyone knows that you're not really going to be totally open with them because everyone knows that if you say something that really takes them aback, they will go tell on you. <laughs> right. <laughs> Which you sense with this, with this program too somehow. Although yes. the big buddies seem uh, to care much less. I don't, I don't know that they would snitch <laughs> on their little buddies. I don't know no. that they care that much. They sounded like RAs to me. Yeah. Um, yeah. More like if if your little buddy tells you something that's alarming to you, you need to tell administrators so that the administrators can step in. Right. In like right. I immediately go to oh, you're really 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 homesick to a dangerous degree, so an administrator mm-hmm. or a counselor needs to come and talk to you. Mhm. Right. Um, but I don't know how much in practice that, yeah, that care exists because, <laughs> yeah, I'm definitely sensing some ambivalence. Mm-hmm. Although, although there is that too. The other thing that reminded me of uh, that one of the reasons that they have the big buddies uh, uh, is because the the administrators want to kind of keep track of which ones are going to wash out, which little buddies are going to wash mm-hmm. out and not come right. back so that they'll know how many spots they can offer for the next year. Like they want to, <laughs> they want sort of a heads up of who's not going to make it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there again, I, it's, it's hard when you read it, it's hard to imagine any of these particular big buddies anyway, mm-hmm. <laughs> coming through on any of that, like telling anything. Mm-hmm. Um, but maybe they do. And like, if they're supposed to be acting as role models to these younger boys, it's like, oh my goodness. Yeah. <laughs> Are you sure? <laughs> That's a yeah, good idea. Yeah, what kind of training do these big buddies get? Mm-hmm. Or is it just, yeah. and now this, these are your ducklings? <laughs> I mean, Hal has kind of a, takes his responsibilities more seriously than some. In fact, I think he says that if they think that you're really responsible, then they'll give you younger ones. And I know one of his buddies is only 10. So they apparently think that Hal is a good, is a good buddy. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> and, and he just seems, he just seems like he at least sort of looks out for most of them. He doesn't like the one, but <laughs> mm-hmm. he doesn't like one of his mm-hmm. buddies or finds him unlikable. But right. even even that kid, he traded to get him. So because the other one of his friends <laughs> couldn't just was couldn't having stand him. unreasonable yeah. dislike for him or something. Yeah. <laughs> one other reference that popped up that I think is a reference. It seems to connect thematically. Um, is that one of the little buddies is named Zoltan Sixentmialhi or something? Yeah, some impossible to, to yeah. s- say so, name. So I believe that name is, 
actually pronounced Csikszentmihalyi. 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 That's a cool name. Yeah, it's a Hungarian name. And there's a psychologist named Mihai Csikszentmihalyi. His research involves happiness and creativity. Ooh. Um, and he's hmm. the originator of the notion of creative flow, which he describes huh. thusly. Being completely involved in an activity for its own sake, the ego falls away. Time flies. Every action, movement, and thought follows hmm. inevitably from the previous one, like playing jazz. Your whole or, being is involved, and you're using your skills to the utmost. Or playing tennis. Or playing tennis, yeah. See, it, mm -hmm. it seems to fit very mu much with like Stitt's philosophy of tennis. It does. Oh, that's fascinating. It is interesting. This whole locker room scene does kind of does speak to that all-consuming. It's hard for me to believe that these boys can be studying for big exams and that they're ta even talking about the classes that they take because the tennis seems so all-consuming. Mm-hmm. They're sitting there, they're talking about how to, they are so tired, they're trying to decide how to describe the extent of their tiredness, and they can't really come <laughs> up with anything. They're so tired because right. they, right. you know, they're, they're training and they're playing matches and they're conditioning and they're, so it's hard to believe that there's anything left for them to go to class and take tests and write papers and stuff. It's yeah, hard brain yeah. power. Yeah. They do it. Yeah. I like that one of them is fantasizing about eating granola with a big wooden spoon. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing that I found somehow uh, really funny was the whole the whole thing about using lemon pledge mm. oh, <laughs> as yeah. a sunscreen. Mm -hmm. I don't know. It reminded me sort of of our current situation with our pandemic <laughs> and our and our political leadership telling people that they should inject disinfectant. I don't know. I thought it. It's kind of along the same line. Spray mm -hmm. your body with, uh, with furniture polish uh, and, and inject your veins with disinfectant. And for good <laughs> measure, shine a UV light down your throat. But in this right. case, it seems to be effective. It mm -hmm. does. He says it has a you like an SPF forty, and it doesn't wash off with your sweat. So this is right. before and so, and so they, they the peel fancy it off. new sunscreens. So they peel it off in big husks and yeah, leave them around the locker it. room. It's so yeah. disgusting. Yeah, but, but it's true. We didn't have sunscreen like that. Mm -hmm. So if we'd only have, if we had only known of lemon pledge, doesn't it make you want to go try it? Um, oh God! Not really. No. <laughs> huh. I'd like to yeah. know. I'd like to know if it actually does peel off like a husk. So afterwards. here's the thing. I bet you, based on David Foster Wallace's days as as a serious youth tennis player, I uh -huh. bet you that that's a real thing. It probably was. Probably was a real thing. Yeah. Yeah, it sounds like a real thing. We also find out in the, well, I think it was in here that we find out that uh, Hal looks like his dad, sort of. Mm, yes. Oh, yeah. And that Oren, Oren looks more like their mom, and Mario, it's impossible to say. <laughs> right. Who Th he that looks it must like. have been that, it must have been some kind of genetic war zone. Chromosomatic war. Because they don't look like you you don't have a kid looking sort of like both parents. It's either or. Somebody's mm -hmm. gonna win out. Yeah, and we do finally get a description of, you know, what Hal looks like and um his ethnic background as well right uh, yeah yeah right uh, i was um 
assuming that Hal was Latinx, but yeah, it sounds like he's mm. more Southwest native. It's funny that you say that because I think that that was my assumption too the first time I read this book. Mm-hmm. And I don't know why I would have thought that necessarily. I yeah, kind well, of pictured him like Draco Malfoy. <laughs> <laughs> who's, who's the opposite of Latinx. Right. <laughs> yeah, for me, it was mostly in the, the last name in Condensa, but also that, you know, mm. we know that they're from, uh, or that um, Hal's father is originally from Arizona. Mm. Uh, right, that's and the true. Southwest and everything. And yeah. Yeah, so that this is useful in that it gives us, like, maybe a better mental picture of who, who our protagonist is here. And once again, we get this non-description of Mario. <laughs> yes. Like, Mario is Mario. beyond doesn't, description. Doesn't really look like anyone. Right. Um, mm-hmm. This is the first introduction of my favorite nickname in the whole book, which is uh, Orthostice makes the companies that give him clothes, give him all black clothes and gear. And uh-huh. his ETA nickname is The Darkness. The oh, darkness. yeah. That's what I you really call like your the cat, darkness. isn't it? Sometimes, call? yeah. Sometimes Kawan is The Darkness. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I said they're trying to think of a way to describe how tired they are, and somebody says, my bones are ringing the way p- sometimes people say their ears are ringing. I'm so tired. My yeah. bones are ringing. <laughs> and then we jump back to Marat and Steeply. Yes. Once again. This is a- another thing that I first noticed in the first 10 pages that I was making up from last week. Um, but it, it comes up again here, the uh, the Brock and Spencer phenomenon. Uh, oh yeah. So that's that translates as broken specter. It's this sort of like ghostly apparition type, like you see your shadow in front of you reflected back from a cloud of water vapor or from water droplets in the air. Ooh. It's al- almost kind of like a rainbow oh, or something. Wow. Um, Wow. And so that, I think, is what they're describing anytime it talks about their shadows, which it does quite a bit of right, in does. this scene. And, yeah. And I'm picturing it's, it has something to do with the, because they're up mm-hmm. on the cliffs there mm-hmm. above the above valley. Tucson. And yeah. something about the way the sun, the angle of the sun. Right. Uh hits them and and that they are creating the shadow that's falling across mm-hmm. Tucson. Yeah, it's a really evocative Oddly. image. It, it, just it the idea of like... It's like a halo I don't know, the, kind of. Yeah, like or like a, astral projection astral. or something. Yeah. yeah. It's interesting, too, because of this shadow, the shadow that's cast mm-hmm. uh, inside of this sort of aura thing. It's It's interesting that... Something as small as one human figure can cast the shadow over this whole valley, basically right. over the city. Right. Yeah. One yeah. It little... makes them seem like giants almost, or something. Right. Right. These guys really worry me when I read about them. <laughs> I, can't, yeah. I can't stop worrying about how and how they got on the ledge. And why? I guess they're there because they—it's a clandestine meeting, and no one's gonna. Right. No one's gonna walk in on them there. But come on, how did they get there? Mm-hmm. 
Weren't there easier well, places to meet? Yeah. Or are they there because of that visual phenomena? Is that why Murat wants to be there? Does he just really like that? That being able it to... It seems like maybe he would be one for the symbolism of that or for the, like, the, the spectacle of that. Yeah. Considering his involvement in that awful train game. Yeah. <gasps> well, that's true. He, so so, so he's, he's given to dramatic gestures life-threatening life-threatening mm. dramatic gestures mm. but at the same time i don't know his motivations seem they keep talking about his wife and how he is doubling because of his wife and mm-hmm. so that he can get medical assistance for his and wife and yet it's so, so funny it's so funny though, then, because he's the one talking about love, the love about love. Oh yeah. Yeah. And so he's doing. It's you're right. They keep talking about how he's doing all this, this crazy double, triple agent, whatever it is that he's doing, is all so that he can get more money to get his wife this medical treatment that she needs. Yeah. Uh, so it yeah, it's this. If that is. If we are to believe the narration that that is what he's doing, it is this right. weird cognitive dissonance. Right. He basically says later, doesn't he, that the love of another person is it's a selfish waste and the love of your cause or love of your country. Now there, you know, right. that's, that's love. I can see that, but I also, I don't know if I agree with Marat there because he's, in that case, he seems very, very devoted to creating and leaving a legacy. And it flies in the face of care for his wife. Mm-hmm. His words don't line up so much, though, with his action, if indeed he's doing yeah. all this for the sake of his wife. Yeah. And he, ref- he refers to her, too, like he talks about how she hasn't ever been to the Southwest, so she hasn't been able to see this, and... I think that this ideological argument is an interesting one. Where do people come down on this? Do, do you find you're more uh, steeply or more a Marat when it comes to this question of like romance versus collective duty? Well, I think romance and love are different. Yes. So well, I would draw that distinction. So I have two lines that I underlined the first time that I read. Attachments are of great seriousness. Choose your attachments carefully. Choose your temple of fanaticism with great care. Mm -hmm. What you Mm -hmm. wish to sing of as tragic love is an attachment not carefully chosen. Mm. Um, And then you are what you love. No, you are completely and only what you would die for without, as you say, the thinking twice. I chose those two quotes, too, as being like, really? (laughs) That's so funny. I love them. And after he says that you are what you love, Mm -hmm. uh, you're completely and only what you'd die for, then he goes on to say, who teaches your USA children how to choose their temple? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Which I thought was a provocative question, something to think about. Mm Mm-hmm. How do we teach our children? It sounds like socialization and how we end up inadvertently teaching our children that the rugged American individualistic ideal, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, is important. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And I'm inclined to think that that's kind of destructive. Yeah. Yeah. And like the only time that patriotism is important or necessary is when it's time to go fight in a foreign war. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. To me, it brings up the question, too, when they say, who teaches your children? Your USA. Mm-hmm. I like that he said, calls them your USA children. <laughs> your USA children. <laughs> With his awkward English. Yeah. Uh, how to choose their temple. I think it's, as a parent, it's like, it's a, it is a constant question. You send your kids off to public school, you send your kids out into the world, and so you know that your children are, are going to, there are going to be people that try to teach your children how they should choose their their temple of fanaticism, right? They, mm-hmm. they choose, mm-hmm. How they should in- choose what they invest their time and energy and hopes and dreams in. And then, so you know that you're sending them out there, uh, but you also hope that somehow you can, <laughs> you can nudge them in different directions than the common culture might say. And you right. never really know, you never really know how, what effect you have on your kids. Mm-hmm. Because we can, you can nudge the USA children in many directions, but they're their own <laughs> selves. And so they're going to, you know. This also calls to mind the question for me of, can you choose your temple? Oh, that's hmm. a good question. I think that. Yeah, I think so, to a degree. I think also that, like, cultural values are what dictates what your temple is. And so in some ways, that question of who teaches your USA children how to choose is is the bigger question. It's not necessarily about their conscious choice, but it's about the priorities of their cultural indoctrination kind of Mm -hmm. yeah and as an extension Mm -hmm. extension of that is i did think when i read it uh well your teleputer for sure Uh teaches your usa children yeah this is true it's important just that you know the constant cultural bombardment that comes through media Mm-hmm. especially yeah. TV kinds of and advertisements and mm-hmm. things like that, that really bombard kids and everyone with messages in short, flashy moments here and many, many times repeated until mm-hmm. it's how you see the world. And that deter- that helps determine what you're going to, where you're going to choose to put your attachments. Mm-hmm. I just realized that my asking, can you choose your temple, uh, makes me a Steeply, because Steeply asks, what if sometimes there is no choice about what to love? (laughs) What if the temple comes to Muhammad? Yes. I was thinking a little about that, too, because because he would say that, he, he would probably say that you can't really choose, if you're just talking about loving a person, that you don't really choose that that it just it's it happens <laughs> would he say that that it's like you're helpless you meet this yeah. person and you're helpless you just love them yeah i think so, so. 
that like Cupid's mm-hmm. arrow, kind of. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or it could just be, even be a friend, you know, someone mm-hmm. that you just, it's a feeling. It's not a logical choice, which <laughs> Marat would more say it's, it's always a choice. Right. Wouldn't yeah. he? Mm-hmm. Well, he says yeah. in, in a case such as this, you become the slave who believes he is free. You believe you would die twice for another, but in truth would die only for your alone self. It's sentiment. So is he saying that although he obviously does love his wife enough to try to get her this medical treatment that she supposedly needs, that if push came to shove, his love of country or his love of his cause would have to override that? Maybe, which is interesting because the thing that sparks all of this is, uh, steeply mentions, is it Rodney? Rodney Tynes? Yeah. Love for Luria. Luria. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The sort that gets sung about, the kind people die for, and then gets immortalized in song. You got your ballads, your operas, Tristan and Isolde, Lancelot and what's-her-name. They say the man would die twice for her, say he wouldn't have to even think about it. Not just that he'd let the whole of Onan come down if it came to that, but a die. I mean, it, it really is like just these two sides of, the, of a dichot, like a philosophical dichotomy. Mm-hmm. On the one end, you have somebody who puts personal attachment ahead of duty to country. And on the other end, you have somebody like Marat who orders those priorities the other way around. But does he, though? I mean, this is this is that cognitive dissonance, because if oh. he if he really is a triple agent... Who really is betraying the AFR. Yeah, then he's betraying somebody. Yeah. The end note said something about an even number of... So if he's just a double agent or just a quadruple agent. Oh, right. He's a quadruple agent. People think he's a triple agent, but he's actually a quadruple agent. Yes. Yes. Which doesn't which is, make any sense to me. Which it's is so exhausting. It's exhausting. And, yeah. and they seem to both be completely aware of the like complex, fiddly game they're playing. Mm. Where Steeply is like, and you'll be sure to tell your superiors that I told you to tell them or something yeah, like that. Something yeah, something like right, that. Right, right. Yeah. Right. Um, but so to Andrew, your last point... Um, I was wondering if, is this a game that Marat is playing to motivate Steeply? Mm. Maybe. Maybe. I'm well, not I convinced. still don't know what they want. What do they want from each other? I don't, I don't understand I really think what it's they just, want from each other. It's just information sharing at this point, I think. But what like information the, are they actually sharing? So Steeply, <laughs> Steeply <laughs> is there to meet with Marat and, and basically tell him what what the Office of Unspecified Services is up to. Mm-hmm. And, and so he talks about the the medical attache, right? Right. He, he brought mm-hmm. that news, or he brought that right. question without yeah, really it, expecting... Marat to give him an answer on that. But he does, kind of. And, yeah, and, and there, of. there's some information sharing about, like, kind of who's on whose side or, or, or who's an operative for whom that they, they talk about a little bit. But I do think that their conversation derails almost immediately and becomes about these deeper philosophical issues. That's why, and neither of them are there for that reason. Derails. 
<laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, not <laughs> intended. I'm sorry. <laughs> I like or maybe that. this is, maybe it is why they're there. They certainly don't have very much information to share, so they must be. Mm-hmm. This is true. They must be meeting just because they're going to, you know. Mm hmm. They seem kind of like buddies at, at this point. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like they can count on having a good and annoyingly interesting conversation with the other guy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Philosophically uh, satisfying somehow. <laughs> right. Steeply talks about uh, Helen in Paris, uh, Helen of Troy. And uh, the face that launched vessels, the horse, the gift, which was not a gift, the anonymous gift brought to the door, the sack of Troy from inside. Mm -hmm. Um, I feel like there's a parallel being drawn between the entertainment that the medical Uh, attache is watching and the Trojan horse. Mm -hmm. Good point. And I wanted to bring that up. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad you, I'm glad you pointed that out because I remember thinking the same thing. The anonymous gift brought to the door. <laughs> yeah. The sack of Troy from inside. It's like the it's like the entertainment cartridge. <laughs> mm-hmm. Anonymously shows up, right? The real mystery of the entertainment to me is that so the Office of Unspecified Services seems pretty certain that this was made that the entertainment was made by Incandenza. By Incandenza? By Incandenza. Do- they? Yeah, Do that's they? In, that was in last week's. Let me let me find that. And they believe it was mailed by the wheelchair assassin. Yes, whose name yeah. I can't say in French. Vinny. Les assassins de Royans. Oh, love to hear that. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. Uh, I would say that myself every time I refer to them, except I can't say. Yeah. It. So thus the wheelchair assassins, which doesn't sound uh, nearly okay, as romantic. Okay, here. So this is this is what Steeply says. The follow-up of the Boston offices reports possible indications of the victim's prior possible involvement with the widow of the auteur we both know was responsible for the entertainment in the first place. The sum is dot. We don't know who the auteur is. It doesn't tell us. Except that they talk about his wife. They say that the medical attache was involved with the wife of the auteur. And we know that Avril Incandenza was involved with the medical attache. We do? Yeah, that's something that in the section with the conversationalist, when he's going off oh, on his paranoid oh, ramblings, oh, he mentions oh. that Hal's father's wife is involved with a medical attache. How can you take what he says as a, as the conversationalist as like 100% truth? I don't, but that would be an enormous coincidence for there to be a different filmmaker whose wife was involved with the medical attache. Fair. There Fair. is only one filmmaker. I mean, not, not outside the realm of possibility, but it seems to me no. pretty, think, pretty clear that... And, yeah. and I'm not saying that we as readers know that Incandenza made this film, but Steeply and his people seem pretty sure of the fact. And he also implies that the AFR also knows that Incandenza made the film. Mm. He says the auteur we both know was responsible for the entertainment in the first place. But is Steeply speaking to Marat as an individual or Marat as a wheelchair assassin? That's a very good question. So is it in that his filmography? It's no. not. Well, okay. So the closest we get, Infinite Jest, so the last film listed, Infinite Jest 6. 
You're the trial size Dove Bar, Poor Yorick Entertainment Unlimited, Madam Psychosis, No Other Definitive Data, Thorny Problem for Archivists, Incandenza's Last Film, Incandenza's Death Occurring During Its Post-Production, most archival authorities list it as unfinished, unseen. So there's a lot of information that we don't know about it. So West Coast archivists list the film's gauge as 1678N millimeters, basing the gauge on critical allusions to radical experiments in viewers' optical perspective and context. Hmm. Hmm. I don't know what that means right now. I don't either. It seems intentionally vague to me. Some kind of mind-bending experience for the... Right. If I were to point at one film from Incandenza's filmography that I thought was the entertainment, that would probably be, be the one. his last one. I yeah. guess that would make sense. I could see that. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I mean, the... perhaps maybe he watched it. And that's how he committed suicide. It's possible. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh like the joke. The uh, Canadian archivist lists the film as completed and privately distributed by Poor Yorick Entertainment through posthumous provisions in the filmmaker's will. All other comprehensive filmographies have the film either unfinished or unreleased. It's master cartridge either destroyed or vaulted sui testator. I don't know what that means. Is that intestate? Like... Oh, like as part of his estate. As, par- as, as part, part of, of his, his estate. Hmm. Oh. Oh. He actually said in that, when he was the conversationalist, your own dear grammatical mother's cavortings with not one, not two, but over 30 Near Eastern medical attaches. <laughs> <laughs> Nearly 30. Nearly 30. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah. So Steepley is basically saying that this entertainment is a weapon. It's Mm. being used as Mm -hmm. a weapon, right? If it was mailed out maliciously by the wheelchair assassins? I think so. Or accidentally. He uses the term samizdat also. And Brianna, you you looked up what that was. That's an actual word. According to Wikipedia, samizdat was a form of dissident activity across the Eastern Bloc in which individuals reproduced censored and underground makeshift publications, often by hand, and passed the documents from reader to reader. So made made uh, illegal illegal copies being made. Right. <laughs> for, for, for the purposes of like dissident activities. Yeah, agitating against the state. Right. Yeah. I was just glancing at the end of our pages here and it's kind of a continuation about that what is your temple right and choosing mm-hmm. your attachments carefully but but Marat asks this this question which I think I I think about a lot right now in our current situation with our pandemic and with the the void in American leadership for this choice determines all else no all other of our, you say, free choices follow from this. What is our temple? What is the temple thus for USAs? Mm-hmm. And uh, so what is it that, that, you know, we were talking about who teaches the USA, your USA's children, but really all of us. And where do our attachments lie, you know? Yeah. Do they lie with the planet and the world? Do they lie mm-hmm. with? Uh, me in my house do they you know what does what does that mean for all of us but then he also goes on he says what is it 
when you fear that you must protect them from themselves, them, I assume, means the USAers, right? Uh, You must protect them from themselves. If wicked Quebecers conspire to bring the entertainment into their warm homes. Hmm. (laughs) I don't think the Hmm. Quebecers would have to conspire to get the entertainment into American homes. I think the American homes would just be very happy to have more entertainment. (laughs) Right. Yeah. But they, but... This the particular entertainment that was delivered to the medical attaché. Certainly, I mean, fair. Yes, fair. <laughs> he apparently needed to be protected from himself. I mean, I thought about that too. That you know, his wife had his wife been there. That she she kind, would she have died protected too. him, but she wouldn't have. She just would have watched it first if she would have previewed it before mm-hmm. setting it aside for as something that he would. Uh, watch unless she is more cautious about taking unlabeled stuff and putting it in their teleputer, maybe. But I think it's a caution, a cautionary statement. You know what? What? Where are your attachments? And kind of be careful about what you choose as your attachments, and think about it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Thanks for joining us again. Next week, we'll be talking about pages 109 to 127. Our music is by David Nichols. Listen to his podcast, The Land of Random, on Spotify. Um, Does anyone have any plugs or anything they want to mention to our seven listeners? We have seven listeners? Well, well, let's say up to seven listeners. Anywhere between zero and seven listeners. Well, hi and welcome. My usual plug, I'm on Instagram at CardboardVV. Mm-hmm. Uh, my website is agingrick.com. I've got a new video up about lighting, or should have uh, by the time this goes out. I have nothing to add. And to all of you listening to us out there in the big world that we're not allowed to see or touch, speak for yourself, darkness. So what are people up to for the rest of the day? I'm not doing this, but Andrew, your cousin Sam, and Ellie are buying a house. They have an Oh, wow. A Holy crap. That's cool. a big deal. Wow. Vinny, how about you? Um, He's buying a house. Yeah, yeah buying you're buying a house. house. We're all yep. buying houses. Yeah. Brianna and I are each buying a house of our own. Parachute is oh. buying Parachute's a house. Parachute's buying a house. <laughs>